Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll discuss the runners and riders, who are the big favourites to win it, and our dark horses too. We'll talk about our standout players and those like Messi and Ronaldo, who it's our last chance to see. We'll discuss our favourite World Cup memories and our favourite World Cup goals as well. This is The Game. Hello again. Welcome to part two of our World Cup preview on the game. We've already spoken about the home nations, if you like, who'll be taking part. I'm Hugh Wisencroft, by the way, alongside Alison Rudd, Tony Cascarino and Gregor Robertson this time around. We're going to relive some of our favourite World Cup memories for you as World Cup fever, if you like, takes hold, sweeps the nation, sweeps the world in many ways. Of course, we know some of the negative subplots at this tournament and we've spoken about some of those already. So we're going to talk about some of the other ones held elsewhere and maybe some of the positives to go with it as well um, but I've got a man sitting in front of me who's played at World Cups no less in the shape of Tony Cascarino so I'm going to take you back to what <laughs> that was like Tony just everything that went with it for you uh, your memories and the emotion of it the first or the second one Hugh <laughs> Well, I'm going to obviously... It's oh, a great start. I know, I know, I know. He's, he's done that a lot. The, yeah. the, yeah. the first, Italy. Yeah, of Italy. course, the first, the first, because that's when I'm sure the emotions yeah. are different. Well, it's the first time Ireland ever qualified for a World Cup, 1990. If you'd have said to me as a young boy growing up that I'd go to a World Cup and meet the Pope, spend a couple of hours in the Vatican and incredible scenarios and being on telly to every country in the world... Um, in the experience of being followed by a huge contingent of Irish fans with players that I had great sentiment and fondness for, that we all experienced something that you can never replicate again. That was World Cup 90 and the homecoming was pretty extraordinary because as we were flying from Italy back to Dublin, we got within about half hour from Dublin and the physio, Mick Byrne, always exaggerated, said, oh, there's 200,000 people in Dublin as we're flying in and 10 minutes later, ah, oh, there's 400,000 people in Dublin <laughs> and 10 minutes to go with man. There's half a million. There's <laughs> half a million there. And as we're approaching him, we're all laughing, taking the mick out of him. But as you fly over Dublin Airport, it was just incredible. There was a sea of 
Irish flags and people. And well, it, I can only imagine it was like one of the biggest rock bands, whether it's the Beatles landing, I don't know, U2, if it was Dublin, and which it was Dublin, um, and maybe even take that, the, the sort of the big rock bands. Yeah. The, the, honestly, that was the longest out of my life, by the way. By the end, I cracked because it was just so annoying because everyone cuddling you and everyone kissing you and having too much drink and partying Tony. by the end of the night, honestly. It you was. had enough. You've had enough of being a national <laughs> hero. It didn't even take 24 hours. That's disgraceful. Oh, it was a long day. But it was great fun. So what about the tournament itself? I know you've told us about some of the, the specific stories, but just the, the magnitude of the event, you know, mm. being one of the small pieces of, you know, apart from the Olympic Games, the biggest sporting event in the world. Well, look, obviously Italy is a home of football, isn't it? In you know... Obviously, England and you know and everyone's likes, and yeah. South America like to think they you know the home of football as well. But Italy is a pretty big player in the world of football, uh, so that was extraordinary. Obviously, my background and my dad being Italian was another sort of connection to that World Cup. With that, the group we were in because we were in a group of England, which was our opening game in the tournament. Holland and Egypt, which was a really tough group. And I lost my place as well after the second game. And I'd been our top goal scorers going top goal scorer going into the tournament. And after two games got dropped. And that was tough to take. So that was the, the downside. Mm. And also we didn't win a game. Let's get this right. The story of we didn't win a game when we made the quarterfinals of the World Cup. We drew all our our games. England, Holland and Egypt. Then we drew with Romania. Then we qualified for a penalty shootout. And then obviously we played Italy in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. I know it's a negative, but I think, you know, (laughs) we've heard so many of your positives about the World Cup that it is intriguing to take you back to what it's like being told at the biggest moment of your sporting life that you're not going to be starting anymore, particularly when you've had such a positive impact on the team in the preceding months and years well it was really weird Hugh because prior to the tournament obviously being our top goal scorer going into it so you think you're pretty much guaranteed the tournament really Mm -hmm. and we played Italy in the quarterfinals and Viali was the big star in Italy at that time I'm not trying to say I was the big star of Irish football but I remember sitting on the bench looking around and thinking Viali's on their bench we both started the tournament as certainties to start for our nation okay Scalacci did what he did and ended up taking his place and he ended up swapping shirts with Viali at the end of the game and it was so surreal to me for that experience because it shows you how tough it is to take being dropped I got dropped in the hotel foyer by Jack Charlton we played England then we played Egypt and no one played well we drew nil-nil and it was a horrible game it was a nil-nil game and it was just nothing in it that happened and then as we were walking across the foyer, Jack's looked at me and he just went, you're out. <laughs> and I've gone, sorry, Jack. And he's gone, you're out. You, you're not playing. You're not playing against the Dutch. You're not playing. And I went, really, Jack? And he went, yeah, you're out. You were shit against the, uh, the Egyptians. And that was it and walked off. <laughs> and I'm standing in the foyer and think, did, I, did that just really happen? So it really took it quite, I couldn't make out, you know, it was so sudden, it wasn't like you've had a training session or, you know, there's a bit of talk going on and Jack might make changes it just come with a sledgehammer in the foyer, and that really took me by surprise I was really gutted and upset the physio and little Charlie O'Leary who's our kit man, both went down to the, the beach and sat on the beach talking to him and he was obviously trying to get me to feel better and it's nearly impossible, 
And that was really tough to take because now you feel you're on the outside. And Mick McCarthy had a go, a little pop at me in the tunnel when we before we played the touch be, uh, the Dutch before the game. He said to me, lift your head up and get your head up. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I've turned around and said to Mick, if you were dropped, Mick, you'd be worse than me. So we've all, I've always had this conflict before we play the Dutch. But I've always said, look, Jack Charlton made a change. He played Noel Quinn. He scored the goal in the game. We drew 1-1, got us through to the, the, uh, the last 16. This decision was correct. Whether I liked it or not, I had to take it. And it just shows you, and we talk about how many games you need, before. You know, how many games can you play not so good for and then be left out? Well, if you're in a World Cup tournament, you've either got to be the biggest star. I mean, if a Viali can get dropped after a few games, who was the biggest star in Italy at that time, you know, two games, if you've not played well, you're out. And that's it. That's World Cups. I'm going to leave your favourite moment to the end of the podcast, right? We've <laughs> swept the negatives out of the way and we're going to end on a high, but we'll leave that right yes. until the end of the podcast. There's loads for us to discuss when it comes to the World Cup. That was, by the way, an incredible story, Tony, and I'm sure there's going to be more, including who we think could win it, standout players. We'll talk about the players that will probably get a last glimpse of a World Cup during this tournament and our dark horses and much, much more. Let's begin with the riders and runners. Um, I've had a look at the odds. Um, Brazil, favourites at the moment, um, closely followed by their South American rivals, Argentina. Then France, of course, the holders. And then England, uh, who are in with a group alongside a lot of other European nations, Spain, Germany, Netherlands and others too. But I think what's most interesting looking at the favourites is that it has now been 20 years since a side from South America has won the World Cup. Which seems odd, you know, particularly as one of them was in Brazil and we all thought they had, you know, huge hopes. and They got obliterated by Germany in the semi-final and they haven't really delivered. In fact, much of what's said about Lionel Messi in a negative context revolves around what Argentina have not done at World Cups during his career as well. So do you think they will be winners this time around? No. No. <laughs> because Denmark are going to win. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very European. They are. They're they not are. in the least bit South American. No, 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 no Hispanic, Latin blood no. coursing through the veins of most Danish people. No. None. Okay. All right. So we've got your. <laughs> we, we, we know what your dark horses are going to be. No, then. that's not my dark horse. It's not even your dark horse. No, that's who I think is a genuine favourite for the World Cup. Oh, okay. I don't agree with the bookies. Bookies always say Brazil are going to win the World Cup, and as you've just pointed out, Hugh, they rarely do. So. Why would they do that? It's just lack of imagination. Because when people say World Cup, they suddenly hear the music and they think about Pele and they think, oh, Brazil are brilliant at World Cups. But they, they haven't been. They haven't been no, for quite some time. Not modern day Brazil, um, but obviously they are five times winners. That doesn't. That does not mean a thing. Well, they got a lot for of this players. World they Cup. Does not mean for, any for this talent. World Cup. Here's the thing, though. They this is a modern. Brazil. Yes. This is a modern Brazil. And whenever they are good at World Cups, it's when they sort of throw the fact that we've got Brazilian flair and we should be outplaying and outscoring everyone. And they have a manager who adds a dose of realism and says, well, hold on a minute, unless you can keep clean sheets and shut up shop and be quite stodgy in international football, then you don't really get the chance to have the flair players show off. So we'll play two holding midfielders. And we, we know those players here. You know, Casemiro is at Manchester United. They've got Fabinho at Liverpool, at Fred as well. They can play pretty well in terms of that holding midfield area. They've got the likes of Gabriel Jesus, um, you know, all depending on fitness, of course. Neymar. Rafinha, Richarlison. 
you know, players that are playing in the Premier League, not exactly running past four and fives every weekend, who like to put a tackle in, that could be the recipe for their success this time around. And it has been, by the way, a, a long-term success under their manager, Chiche, for, uh, God, the last couple of years. I think they've been pretty hard to beat. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's been like a shift from a shift towards kind of European style of football at more kind of high intensity, high press and that kind of thing. But now, but Brazil have kind of woken up to that, I think. And as you say, they've they've understood what they have to do to to win in 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 the modern day game, basically. And they still have all that attacking talent, but they have a a more solid foundation now. Um, so we also got to mention Allison in goals, probably the best goalkeeper in the world. Yeah. Um, Edison's not a bad backup either. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say the same about Argentina. Same kind of conversation. They've they've got that kind of foundation as well. If you've got you know, Christian Romero, Sandro Martinez, uh, Montiel, who's at Sevilla, Sevilla. They've been on a kind of upward trajectory for really four years, in fact. I think they're unbeaten in 35 games. So, and Messi's happy, which is probably the most important thing for and him. Fit. He's got a smile on his face because mm. it's not always been the case. And it feels like a bit of a weight was lifted when they won the Copa America as well. So those two, for me, are the are the favourites. Uh, and, and like, uh, as you say, I, I, I kind of accept what you're saying. They they always seem to be the favourites and uh, it doesn't quite happen for one There's reason or another. There's a pressure to that though, isn't there? There's the pressure of your history. There's the pressure of knowing mm. you've got, you could just list and list how many great talents there are, you know, and whenever anyone of that calibre signs for a Premier League club, everyone gets very excited still. There's a, there's a sort of mystique and majesty and mm. wow-ness about the best South American players. But when you put it all together, it's often a concoction that doesn't quite work because it's a difficult one. Getting all those players to realise they're part of a whole and they can't play like they do for their clubs. And it's, it's it, there's a lot that can go wrong. And you say Messi's happy, but in Russia, Messi had too much influence with the Argentina team. And that, that meant that his teammates were, while they still loved him as a player they were resentful of who who are we taking instructions from I don't think that's the case anymore yeah. Lionel Scaloni replaced Sampaoli in 2018 and that was that undoubtedly uh, an issue and of course he's going to still hold sway but the, the, the sounds coming out of the Argentina camp are that he's happy and there's, it's a happy camp actually yeah. um, so I, I, I understand what you're saying they're, they, they're, it just feels like often as well South American players would gravitate towards in the past this is would gravitate towards Italy or Spain mm. and now there's a lot we've seen we've seen a lot in recent seasons come yeah. to the Premier League right. or, or playing and also there's a kind of a development of that kind of brand of football that style of football in Europe that's the most successful they're playing in high high energy you know high intensity high tempo teams and that's undoubtedly going to wear off in their style of football I just want to add one thing something that always struck me with Brazil was they won the World Cup in 94, which I was at, and the Brazilian fans, public, didn't enjoy and were very critical of their team that won the World Cup under Dunga with a very pragmatic style. Brazil are not allowed to play that way. They just don't. They won't. You know, we talk about pressure on the team and the players or whatever and their greatness. If you speak to the Brazilian public and, and talk to them about what they expect of their team... It's all about winning in style. And they have to do that. You know, what's okay, a manager saying, well, we've got to be considerate, uh, you know, consider what teams do and be stubborn and hard to beat. <laughs> Brazilian fans don't buy that. They really don't. I was amazed at the reaction to Brazil in 94 winning the World Cup. 
Yeah, they won by a penalty shootout. They were very dogged and not particularly... Not many people remember the 94 World Cup Brazilian team. That's one of the problems they have. I do think you'd have to make them both yes. the, the favourites in, in the, the competition. I think one of the things that helps Argentina is, maybe more so than Brazil when it comes to the style that you mentioned, is that they've always basically had an element of aggression compared to Brazil, Argentina. Yes, they've had a skill level, but for them, it's not all about the fun. They've had a few butchers down the years. Um, and I think that maybe helps them in terms of the identity going into the tournament a little bit more than Brazil. But I think for both of them, the thing that, that r- relieves pressure slightly is where the World Cup is in Qatar. And it's in accessibility for most of their fans. Maybe during the course of the 90 minutes, they don't feel the same pressure that they would have otherwise had it been more of their Argentina travelling fans or Brazil travelling fans very, very vocal. I'm sure there will be support for both of those sides and in particular some of the players that they've got because, you know, they have amazing players who the fans want to see do well. But I do think it might help them this time around. The only thing that I think when it comes to Messi, we'll talk about him a little bit later on, but him in particular, when it comes to his role within the squad is that maybe because it feels like last chance saloon for him to win the World Cup, which I think, you know, in terms of the conversation between Messi and Maradona is the big, big missing piece. Will that mean that there is such pressure that it cracks in terms of the group? You know, if they have a couple of bad performances or things aren't going well, how will he handle it? Um, Because as we've mentioned, we've seen before his influence can be very, very big and it's very hard to argue with him especially for a lot of his teammates because they look up to him and, you know, as if he's Maradona, you know. And I, I, I will be very intrigued to see how those dynamics play out over the course of the tournament. In part one, we obviously spoke about our favourites for the tournament in terms of England's chances. I just wondered, Tony, how you think they'll do? Because obviously you weren't involved in that, that show. How do I think England do? Yeah, yeah. I don't think England are good enough defensively. I think there's too many issues to deal with, especially at the heart of their defence. And I think there is an element of lack of pace that too many international strikers who are blessed with incredible speed will take an advantage of. I think that is the issue I'd have with England. I just think you won't get away with the the back line that he can put together, really, uh, that's going to stop some of the best sides in the world. So Southgate's future... Uh, well, look, you never know because you uh, most managers, if you look at the numbers of sackings after European Championships, uh, World Cups, you know, lots of them leave their jobs because most of them suffer disappointment. Um, so it's always a tough call. I think he's got one in the bag where it could go wrong and still be England manager. And it depends how bad it goes. I don't think they'll be close to what they did in eighteen. Uh, I thought the the World Cup in Russia was a lot more open to certain teams. I didn't think Brazil were in a great place. And I didn't think Argentina were either. Um, so that adds a bit of a problem. Germany, I didn't think were in a great place in 18. So, yeah, I'm more pessimistic about England's chances this time around. All right, OK. And listen, some of the other favourites, we're speaking about who could win it. France come into the conversation, of course, as the holders. Kylian Mbappe, as long as he's fit. Unbelievable player that everyone's going to be excited to see once again. I do think the internal politics of France uh, is going to 
play a part in this. I know Paul Pogba, if you like, many people see him as one of the big divas in the France squad, but um, I think the teammates like him. He'll be missing this time around. And I, I just think a bit like at the Euros, uh, it's not really a harmonious place, um, especially under Didier Deschamps, who seems to be ringing the absolute most he can out of that position, to be perfectly honest. I'm... I don't know if we're going to see a France team that, that goes close this time around, but I'm happy to be proved wrong. Uh, Spain, Germany, the Netherlands, um, all outsiders, really, for me. I don't know. Does anyone have a big shout for one of those three teams in terms of their chances of winning? Alison? No, because Denmark are going to win. Okay, all right. <laughs> Gregor? Well, the Netherlands are interesting in that Louis van Gaal's come back, obviously, and come back to his favoured back three. Mm-hmm. Four, five, three, two. Yeah, he yeah, says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So huge, always this huge conversation about that. It seems over the last few years in Dutch football. Well, when I went to uh, Amsterdam during the Euros, we was I was speaking to Dutch fans, and they basically said, "It's sacrosanct. You cannot yeah. play a different formation. This is how the Dutch team is meant to play." So four, three, three. Four, three, three. Yeah. Exactly. So Van Gaal changing that. Was a massive thing. Yeah, it was. And De Burr did as well. He just didn't do it successfully. Yeah. People were absolutely raging about that during the Euros. And Van Gaal taking over was meant to be like, oh, well, you know, he's a Dutch traditionalist. He knows how we're meant to play. He won't change the the dynamics of the formation. And he has. But I think it's working a bit better for him. And so the Dutch public is maybe changing their minds a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, results will do that. And they were one of the most interesting teams at the Euros as well. I thought they were... They were great to watch in the in the qualification uh, sorry in the group stage and then they just kind of floated away and yeah. really kind of timid end and exit but undoubtedly there's some real talent in that that squad Spain kind of a lot of young really talented you know Pedri and Gavi and you know, some some brilliant players in, in the Spain squad uh, I don't think they've they've got enough to go far I think Germany out of all of them though oh, yeah? are, are, are a contender yeah credibly but, without Timo Werner as well yes he adds a dynamic with the pace he's going to be missing yeah, look, when we saw them play against England too, they, I think we said they're kind of one of the, it's a rarity, but they look like a, a club team in international football and that they look, they look very, very well drilled. Everyone knew knew their role. They pressed high, which is, again, is a bit of a rarity now in, in international football. Very dynamic and kind of fluid front three as well, which I think can, can cause trouble when there's not, you know, particularly when there's a lot of low blocks to, to break down. It's kind of, I think you need those kind of rotations uh, to break that down so I think Germany have got a chance absolutely. have they been bad enough over the last few years for us to call them a dark horse then this time around no because they've been really good on their hands is, is it just that they're Germany <laughs> well they are Germany <laughs> so, yeah. so they can never be a dark horse no basically. never 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 yeah. but they've also been brilliant on their hands you know mm. they um, I think that the surprise defeat against Hungary uh, not so long ago but they obviously the game so, against England was was a uh, demonstration you've got to, you've got of to believe a team like Germany can take those surprise defeats and make them they're, they're historically very good at taking negativity and then whoosh, emerging phoenix like to be See, quite yeah, superb afterwards. yeah i mean look timo, timo Werner's never really got going for germany you know we talk about him in the i don't think it affects germany at all the interesting one i do think is kai havertz position for the german team that he plays far better for germany he does for chelsea mm. it's the number 10 role that he adopts for germany and does it really well and has been pivotal for them so do i think germany win it no would I have thought France more likely, but big injuries? You know, you mentioned Pogba, but I would have gone Kante's a huge loss for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, out of any French player. 
because he's missed a lot of football. And I think he makes things happen for the rest of the team. And Bappe, I was watching him last week against Juve and there were some moments in the game, I don't know if anybody see it. I mean, his pace was ridiculous. He was literally leaving people, experience, you know, Benucci, players like that for Juve. He was leaving them for dead. He was literally flying. Yeah. And then when he gets going, it's whether they can get the ball to him as easy. I'm not sure about Hugo Lloris. I know he's won the World Cup in 18, <laughs> but I don't think he's played well this season. I don't think, I, I don't think he... I think it will be his last World Cup. I don't think he'll be number one after this this World Cup. And they're still relying they're still relying on Giroud to be that pivot figure yeah. who releases Mbappe. Yeah. And yeah. Giroud Good. is not. He's probably playing better for his country than his club, but he's not. Well, he's doing well for Milan he's as well. Not, but he's not. He, at some point, that, I mean, it's a bit weird relying on someone that old, isn't it? But if it works, it works, doesn't <laughs> it? Well, who will you play? Will well, he play Karim Benzema, of course, play, yeah. yeah, back in the French no, fold. No, in. but it's it's what makes France tick, is having him do that. Because he mean, is remarkably unselfish about they it. They might go with um, Mbappe on the left, which they've attempted a few times, mm. just to make sure Benzema or Giroud gets into the team. They they have a lot about them. I just think losing Kante for me would be a, a huge loss for, for any national team. It's just coping with adversity for that France side because they were motoring very nicely at the Euros. <laughs> Everyone was tipping them to go and win another tournament. It's the first it, game, Hugh. It's yeah. If their first game goes wrong, that's it. Yeah, you know yeah. That, that's it with France. Le keeps after them. <laughs> yeah, they well they get mm-hmm. they get pelters. Yeah, and, exactly. And, you know, so. I mean they've got good good players to fill in in the, yeah. in the midfield. Yeah. Camavinga, but but not, uh, but not Giovanni. No, still no, very young, but very young, yeah. dynamic. Mm. You know the future. Yeah. Actually, I wouldn't. I don't think we can write them off. I no, but that's why big, that's big why big it makes it hard to call though, because we will have to see something from those players in an international fold that we haven't seen from them before. And it's not to say they can't do it. They're just obviously new to the game in terms of their age. So look, great players, and it has to come together for them. I think to to win the World Cup, particularly when you look at some of the other teams. We might as well go into our dark horses now because we kind of mentioned it with Germany and the Netherlands too. Mine is Spain. I know they're not always incredibly consistent, but when it clicks in terms of keeping possession, dominating matches in international football, it's rare that you will see a side be able to do what they can do in terms of hogging it, basically, which gives them a chance. It does. It gives Mm -hmm. them a chance. Um, As long as I'm Rick Laporte is... Uh, a fit because I think he's pretty key for them. They haven't got a great... This is my main concern for them is even though they've got the likes of Pau Torres, for example, centre-back area is still an issue in terms of the, the... If you like a Sergio Ramos aggressive type, a younger Sergio Ramos, yeah, would have been a, a fantastic addition. That's what they miss for me. But ultimately, if you keep the ball, they've got some 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 fantastic players. They need a goal scorer. And if Ferran Torres can do it, and he's done it quite well in a Spain shirt, I think they have a chance of being the dark horses. This is not me saying they're going to win it. Being the big dark horses in the tournament and possibly making the final four. So I will I'll say Spain. Big fan of Luis Enrique and what he can do as a coach. Anyone else? I'm going to go for Uruguay. I think they've, they've had an interesting year. They changed their manager... Um, this time last year, Oscar Tabares, who'd been in charge for 15 years, 75 year old, <laughs> you, know, you know, the man you you associated with Uruguay for a long period of time, and replaced him with Diego Alonso, who, who was briefly the Inter Miami manager. And they looked like they weren't going to qualify with four games to play, and they won all four games, and there'd been a, a real turnaround. Um, and I just think if you look through their Bentancur, mm. Valverde from Real Madrid, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nunes, uh, we, you know, we don't know about Cavani, possibly injured. Suarez, obviously, getting on in years. 
um, young lad Matthias uh, Oliveira, uh, mm. left back at Napoli. Uh, Jimenez, uh, sorry, Atletico Madrid, Madrid yeah. defender. Probably Diego Godin, still kind of kicking about <laughs> at 36, the old warhorse. I don't know. I think I think they've got some real talent there and kind of doggedness too. Um, and I just think they've had quite a big turnaround in the last year as well. I think the new managers really hit the ground running there and I think they could surprise one or two. Big shout. Yeah, a big shout. Look, I'm going to pick a team that I don't really believe it can win it, but um, it's all right. Our 90 to 1 shots. Yeah, Dark Horse doesn't have to be a winner. 18th ranked in the world. Okay. Okay. Off the top of my head, that's... Go on, see if you can get it. Number 18 in the world. No. Switzerland. African nation. African nation. Senegal. Senegal. I've seen Senegal twice and I came away thinking they remind me so much of Cameroon in 1990. They just really are so strong and they're every set piece they were just they were really hard to score against now they're in a group that I mean I think they're in Qatar's group and um, Netherlands are in their group and I think they'll win that group now I'm going out on one side and win the World Cup now obviously Mane play there Koulibaly players like that elk they have a number of really good players yeah. now What's cost that African nations in the over the years? Well, some would say, well, the coaches that they've had and they've always seemed to implode at some level. Well, I've watched Senegal two two or three times, and they've never never got near to that. They're capable of winning a penalty shootout of as obviously they've done against Egypt twice, to, once to win the African Nations and once to uh, qualify for the World Cup. They are a really difficult team to beat. And I just think they could surprise a few. Whether they've got enough to really get the very deep end of semi-final and beyond, I just think they're never a 90-to-1 shot. So they're going to be my really dark horses. Very good team. Africa Cup of Nations champions, yeah. of course. Not a bad shout. Tony? My, for my pale grey dark horses, if you see what I mean. Mm. My pale grey horses. <laughs> no, I, I, all right, I'll discuss Denmark for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but... I mean, just think about it. They should have won the Euros, so that is a galvanising factor because it was never a penalty. Raheem Sterling <laughs> fell over and they, they would have won it had it not been for that atrocious decision against England. They've got something that no one else has, which is the potential for the biggest fairy tale ever in the history of the World Cup because if you remember, Christian Eriksen was dead for five minutes and then mm. he decided he wanted to get back to playing professional football with his sole motivation being to play for Denmark again at the World Cup. So, I mean, not that you need to be united particularly more than anyone else, but that, that will be a unifying factor. Every, every single one of his teammates will feel blessed that they, he's there mm. and they'll want to win it not just for their country and for them and their families, they'll want to win it for him too. And I think they'll get neutral support because everyone will everyone would want that to be the fairy tale of the World Cup, World Cup, wouldn't they? Yes, I think they would. Also, apart from the romance of it all, I think they're an incredibly well-balanced team. They've got a proper core. You know, you've got Schmeichel, you've got Hoiberg, you've got Eriksen providing more flair. I think he'll play differently than he does for Manchester United. You've got half of them play for one club, Brentford, anyway. So they're, there's, they're, they're, they're all, they all know each other really well. I just think what I've seen of them, they embarrassed France quite recently. When they play well, they are going to be the hardest team to defeat for all those factors. They are the ultimate team who play greater than the sum of their parts. You know, it's a small nation... Most of the players don't command great fees when they get transfers, but they are, as a unit, incredibly good with a mixture of experience and youth. So I would say look out for Denmark. Oh. And look, let's not forget, the World Cup is, what is it, seven games to the final and win? 
Yeah, seven is it? It's a long way. Well, no. If you're seven games, you it's a cup competition. Seven yeah, games. yeah, yeah. You know, which is still a big test, but it's not inconceivable that you can't go on a bit of a run. Mm, mm. You know, to get to a quarterfinal and semis, and then it's all up in the air. And I don't know. There's something weird about that, that keeps this World Cup because it's in such a strange destination that. I feel like a strange thing is going to happen. Yeah, like Denmark. You're alluding, yeah. yeah, whether you're Denmark or I'm saying Senegal, that could they have a possibility in Uruguay? I, 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 I feel like that, Hugh. Football is a different place to me now than it was pre-COVID. Mm. I think the no fans in the stadium era of football provided so many shock results that the main thing that football has learned was that if you play for a smaller team, on the day, you are as good. The main difference was the atmosphere in the stadium. The fans made a huge difference. They are football, basically. But I actually think for a lot of players, it gave them belief that they were good enough to go up against the best. Like, And I do think that has continued in leagues, not just top leagues, the championship, for example. Like, I do think the idea that there is a more level playing field in terms of the quality of player... It's definitely there. Like, I don't think anyone is scared of anyone anymore, mm. basically. You know, I don't even think that's just a football thing anymore. Like, I, I do think in loads of sports, the game was won before it started. Not so anymore. That's all I'm mm. saying. So I, I agree with you. Something could happen, Tony. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that thing happening. <laughs> Are Belgium now so far below any of this to even be a dark horse? We're tired of tipping them, aren't we? Yeah. And being this is probably the last time we will. But anyone you, could but think about it. Do you think that they will... Like, haven't we seen enough here? We've seen enough from Belgium, even though they got to the semi-final last time, to suggest that they're probably not going to... Because the thing is, they're not... Margins, but they're, but they've got the but best, weak, probably they, the best player in the world. Yeah, world. Yeah, but, they're yeah. weak, but they feel weaker overall now than they did then. Courtois yeah. improved, but when you look at the centre-back area... Still got yeah. Bertongen. They've still got Bertongen, Alderweireld, who are, of course, four years older. You and know? no, no hazard of two thousand and eighteen. Yeah, he's not. You know, gone Le, on. Lukaku. I mean, he's oh, got an emerging Trossard. Yeah. Trossard's going to win the World Cup. No, but he's emerging <laughs> and he's he's a good player, very good player. Still got. Listen, they have a lot of good players. Oh, he def- definitely Carrasco, Wetzel, Torgan Hazard. They've got yeah. a lot of good players. Have they got the depth? I think they're one of those nations where they have some great top line players. Best goalkeeper. I guess, I, I guess they're good they're enough. Like England, you, you, you both said. <laughs> they're like England. Oh, you, you both said best goalkeeper and Edison and Allison. Yeah. Yeah. You may be right. Yeah. Courtois yeah. would ugly be the best goalkeeper yeah, in the world. No, you're right. You're right. Okay, all right. Okay, we're, we're the group dark horse. We've come to a conversation. We thought about Should it. Should we have a vote? And we're going for Belgium. Oh, you want us to vote for who our number one out of all the dark horses we just discussed should be? Yeah. I'm happy with that. Fine. <laughs> You're not allowed to vote for your own. Okay. Who agrees with me on Spain? Nobody. Who agrees with Alison? Officially Denmark. No. Tony in Senegal? No, I've really gone out on one. I, I'm happy to go with Tony on Senegal. <laughs> Tony in Senegal's a yeah, good show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uruguay I've not bought into, oh, I've you. got to say. Thanks. Belgium then is officially, I think, as a group, we can sort of say, yeah, okay, they're, they're officially a dark horse. Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, we voted for Belgium. Just because we didn't vote for... De- it's not always about Denmark, Alison. <laughs> Aggrieved every time we don't agree with her on Denmark. I'd rather go to Senegal. By the way, it's listeners, this is all we hear off air, by the way. It's either Christian Eriksen or Denmark is the answer. <laughs> it's the answer to every question when it comes to football anyway. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Let's move on to some of our standout players and some of the players where it's going to be our last chance we imagine to see them on the biggest stage at the World Cup, which is sad, but some of them leave a great legacy. So let's start with the standout players, the ones that we're looking forward to seeing most at the World Cup. Gregor, do you want to kick us off? Uh, Vinicius Junior, I think. Yeah. He scored 22 goals last season. He's kind of keeps improving and reaching standards and new heights that probably, well, I certainly wasn't expecting him to reach. He's the star man in that team now. And I think he could be the star man for Brazil. You know, the focus is always on Neymar, um, but there are a lot of attacking, uh, talented attacking players around him. And I think Vinicius Jr.'s the the most talented among them. Uh, Such searing pace. He can win a game with moments of brilliance on his own I think really so although he's not going to be like a breakout we all know his qualities we've seen it in the Champions League we've not really seen it on the international front because he's only 22 years old and I think this could be his tournament I would still go with Mbappe I think what I saw in the World Cup final of 18 where a young lad got a hat-trick and literally ripped teams to pieces I still think he's he's had his foot off the pedal this season with PSG he's certainly not put in the effort that can make him as good as anything in the in the planet football. Um, so I'm looking forward to him and of the obvious ones of, you know, Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, of course. I mean, you know, this is the final chance of seeing them. But I'll probably go Mbappe as the main one because I still think he's young enough, good enough to be the player that he showed he was in 18. Alison? Well, I would point you to, first of all, I think the golden boot's going to be won by uh, Mitrovic. I mean, the reason he didn't play at the weekend is he's putting his country before his club. I don't, I've never met anyone as passionate about their country, Serbia. So even though they don't think they're going to win it, I think he'll be um, up there with the, among the golden boots. And I think we'll all be like, wow, we knew he was good, but he's really good, isn't he? Yeah. I'll go sort of dark horse territory for who to look out for. I think, I think first of all, I think Iran are interesting because people have been suggesting they should be pushed out the tournament because of treatment of women in Iran. But actually, the men have been backing the women. And I think it's more important that they're there and show their solidarity by, even if it is only zipping over their Mm. shirts when they play the national anthem, that is brave compared to what they've been prepared to do in the past. And I think that's a really significant thing to show that they like women being in the stadium and they want their wives and girlfriends to be able to support them and they support the struggles of women in their homeland. So I want them to be there if they make those statements because it's brave of them to do so. But they actually have some really interesting players. So the breakout story, I think, from the Champions League this season was the success of the Portuguese clubs. And at Porto, they've got a striker called Medi Taremi. He's he scored five goals in the Champions League this season. Mm-hmm. He's one big reason why Porto are, you know, going through. No one thought they would. And also, um, everyone talks about the Bayer Leverkusen striker, Sadar Asmoon, as being a class act. Well, if you've got two really good strikers and you're a nothing nation, maybe you can do something. So I'm I'm really interested in how their their club form, which is excellent and influential 
translates to the country, which we would all say don't really stand a chance, but presumably they give them a chance. So I'm looking forward to seeing them. Mm. Hugh, what's what's your player to look out for? <laughs> I have gone for a group of players. Cheat, just, cheat, just, cheat. Just come with me on this, okay? There are so many players of a similar, similar ilk, similar standard, similar level of, of excitement. Do you remember Lemmings? Yes, it's like that. The Japan squad. Like for like players of a similar quality. Eye for a goal, speed, quality on the ball, long names. But ultimately, <laughs> I think you should be excited generally to see what Japan can do at this World Cup. The two players in particular who I'm looking to, to see stand out are the players from Celtic, Furuhashi and Maeda. Not necessarily going to start every single game. He likes to mix things up at Japan. There's Matoma as well at Brighton. Young player coming through. Seems to get better and better every time you see him. I think we all saw Kamada at Eintracht Frankfurt as well. Again, similar. Just technically very good. Eye for a goal. Always just so lovely to watch all of these players. So I cheated. But I'm looking forward to seeing what particularly Japan's attack can do at this World Cup. But yeah, keep an eye on Furuhashi. It's an A1. Absolutely. What about our last chance to see? This is a big one because it involves the heavyweights. Lionel Messi and for sure Cristiano Ronaldo. It must be his last mm. World Cup. The legacy that these two players leave on that wonderful tournament. What do we think? Let's start Let's start with Cristiano Ronaldo because there's been so much discussion about him so far this season. What well, will... he'll be fresh. <laughs> <laughs> what is his legacy, though? I mean, well, he's got the most astonishing legacy. At the, and... at the tournament, this is, of course, not just as a player, oh, but I see his what World you mean. Cup well, legacy. But his international legacy, his yeah. goal-scoring record is um, absolutely phenomenal. There's probably not going to be a more motivated player at the World Cup, even more than Messi, I think. He is full of righteous indignation at the way he's been treated at Manchester United. And I think, I am i don't know if I'm remembering people saying this of him or rather him saying it about himself, but I'm pretty sure the message is getting out from his people that he's prioritising going out with an absolute bang with Portugal and he wants to win the tournament with Portugal. And I think they have, you know, they have a reasonable chance because they're they're a strong squad. I think they're stronger than they were last time around. I think so. And yes, okay, he's getting on a bit and it's not going well for him at his club, but I do think he's that sort of player that can almost rise above anything. In fact, he literally can. He rose above the fact he'd <laughs> lost a child, he'd lost a child, and he played, you know, he played a few days later. And I think that's I think that's utterly remarkable and he played well too. He is so focused. I used to hate watching him play. I found him an arrogant so-and-so and I felt it was all about the cult of him and not the team, which was anti-football. But I have come to think, I, I don't know anyone with that level of dedication and as a, a, an a sort of built that self-belief so that he can overcome anything. I think he will be a significant contributor to the tournament and there's no way on earth it's going to be his last World Cup and he doesn't make his mark. He won't let that happen. Well, I mean, listen to Alison there. It's, there's not much to say about Ronaldo. <laughs> um, he's done everything and he's still never lost the heart hunger, which is the most extraordinary thing because most sportsmen really do lose some sort of desire, even the very best. I do think the challenge of him and Lionel Messi is always going to be, sorry for the cliched line, but, you know, it does 
take them up a notch every time. And this World Cup, if you go back to when Lionel Messi was voted player of the tournament, um, which was, was it 18? He won player of the tournament. Uh, but anyway, I, I think that both of them have kept themselves going and had the moves they've had and looked at the clubs they've signed for to go to a World Cup in the best condition they can be in. And I th- the year before, when PSG took Lionel Messi, they took him and he didn't have a pre-season. And it showed last year. He had every injury in the world last year for playing for PSG. This year, he had a whole pre-season and he's the sharpest I've seen him for a long time. So I'm looking forward to seeing the pair of them. But Lionel Messi and him, the battle is... Of honour, isn't it? Who can keep adding to their incredible accolades of trophies yeah. they've already won? In in 2014, I think you meant that. 14. But I think Messi was sulking the first year at Paris Saint-Germain, to be perfectly honest. But I, mean, in, I think he was sad. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I yeah. think that's the that's difference between sulking and sad. Yeah. Oh, I see. You just think his general demeanour was he had sad. No, Hugh, he had no pre-season. You know, his whole pre-season was blighted by issues. And yes, you're right. I think there was an element of emotion that Mm. took him to a low place. He certainly isn't like that this season. He's been playing very well for PSG. I don't think their legacy is in in doubt. It shouldn't be. But I think if you're to ask who's going to have more of an impact, I think it's going to be Messi and Argentina. Portugal stumbled their way into the tournament. They lost to Serbia in the the playoff. uh, To get to fall into the playoff, sorry. They play really conservative football, which a lot of the, I think a lot of the, you know, Portuguese fans think is shackling a kind of group of players that are, you know, extremely talented. Ronaldo's part of that. We saw it in the Euros too. He's kind of he's just a, a lone figurehead at the top of the pitch, and this kind of cast of rotating like Manchester City little kind of, yeah. <laughs> those little number tens, yeah, yeah, trying to create for him. And it's not it's not a it's not conducive to success in modern football. So I think he probably will go out with a whimper. But his legacy is anyone who doubts it is a fool. Yeah, but I th- it's one of those where mm, maybe the online fans, I think, would say it's Messi who's under more pressure to deliver, generally at a World Cup because he plays for Argentina, than, of course, Ronaldo, who's played for Portugal. However, between the two of them, obviously, when it comes down to that argument, long term, Messi or Ronaldo, <laughs> a World Cup makes a huge difference. Yes. And it will mean something to them both. Oh, believe me, because I think they have had such a huge rivalry that that's one that they're going to take to the grave, you know? And they, they will be having those conversations throughout history. And you just want to be the one out of the two of them that says, well, I did win the World Cup, didn't I? So you it, know. it does. It, <laughs> it makes a big difference. And one thing I'd add to it is that someone once said this to me, and I never really took it on board immediately was that club football and international football, international football represents about 8% of your career compared to club. Club's your 92%. And if you're lucky to play a lot of international matches, you're judged on the 8%. But the 8% is really important, and especially at the top end. And I think that ultimately... You know, I, I had a conversation, a quick conversation I had in a jacuzzi <laughs> at, Nancy, at Nancy Football Club when we were talking about the world's greatest players and they were all these names were coming out, Platini and Van Basten and blah, blah, blah. And I came from nowhere and said, um, George Best, not one of them had ever heard of him. And it was all because he didn't play international football 
in a World Cup. And that is the impact of going back to the very start of this conversation of the realisation that I had being in front of so many hundreds of millions of people that you can remember the Northern Ireland team of 82 and what they done in Jerry Armstrong, but you don't remember George Best, who was one of the greatest players that ever played. That is the impact of international and World Cup football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once every four years, it's emblazoned on the memory every single time. Aside from those two, Messi and Ronaldo, we're going to be maybe saying farewell at a World Cup to some of the greats, or at least some that have the chance of being remembered as such. World Cup winner, I'll start with Thomas Muller, who I don't think will be playing another World Cup after this, of course. He has been a fantastic player throughout his career. One who is, I I always used to say, you can't put your finger on the one thing that he's amazing at because he's very, very good at so many things. He was like an eight in every single category. He's so intelligent in and around the box. He always seemed to be in the right place just to put the ball in the back of the net with a cheeky smile on his face. I've loved watching his entire career. To be honest, I'll be sad. he's one player I'll be sad when he retires. Hopefully, he's very involved in this Germany team because, of course, he was out. He was one of those who was deemed too old for a period of time and then came back in and, and proved that he could still do it in a Germany shirt. Doesn't always start for them, of course, because they've got some great young players. But if he gets the chance, I'd love to see him do well at this tournament and maybe retire from Germany on his terms. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't imagine he'll be a starter, but he's, he's certainly someone you can see uh, making an impact because, as you say, He's so intelligent in the way he kind of reads the game and finds space. He's pretty unique, actually. He's a unique type of player in that he's not, you know, he's hard to categorise. He's not quick. Mm. He's not mm. that strong. He's not... That technical. No. He's just, he's just <laughs> as you said... He's, he's kind of, just Thomas Miller. He is Thomas Miller. He's, yeah. what, what was yeah. it? His nickname is kind of like the Space Cadet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like the Space investigator or something it, was, it wasn't that but it was like that's what he is he finds space yeah. and like better than anyone yeah. I better look that up yeah we'll look that up <laughs> I, I, if you were talking about players that I think and you would probably say now he'll be playing on I think De Bruyne will call it a day after this World Cup Ooh, big oh, yeah. shout big shout that's a big one big, I, I say that because his body yeah yeah his body and and if, oh, look, he's has he uh, borrowed it is it not his does he have to give it back <laughs> no I think he's had enough injuries and I think Man City, and I think you'll recognise to play for Man City more often than not, he's going to have to quit international football. I think that will happen with De Bruyne. You think, and, you think he'll maybe make it to the next Euros? Yeah. That would be a push. A World Cup, no. This would definitely mm. be... For me, I just don't see him getting that far down the line because look, he's, he's Belgium's greatest to have a player for me. I don't think I've seen a better player from... No. From, you know, Belgium with the talent that he's got. And in some ways, it's a bit like... His stature in world football, if he was to lift the World Cup, then, you know, well, would he be the greatest midfielder of all time? He'd certainly well, be one of them. I mean, look, just being instrumental in getting Belgium to one semi-final, if they can get to the final four again, yeah. I think for a nation like that, I mean, it would be entrenched that, that De Bruyne would go down as one of the great midfielders yeah. of, of all time. Robert Lewandowski of Poland, 34 years old now. Probably not going to see him. Maybe. I think we'll see him for another two World Cups, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, look, I, I have a feeling that he'd play one more after this yeah. because he's from Poland and they don't produce many talents like Robert Lewandowski. Well, no one does, but, you know, he's a generational talent for a, a nation like that. He's a leader. He seems to be still effervescent. That'd be his choice, though. As Tony said, it could be, could be to do with his body and fitness, but it could mm. also be to, be, be to do with... The shape that Poland are in, and they've not been in great shape of late. So, you know, how motivated is you going to be to keep turning up to That's true. get turned over? 
the one I think the player that I'd probably be most emotional over saying goodbye to, if it is his last World Cup, which it probably will be, is Luka Modric, because he is he does transcend everything. I think no matter how patriotic you might be, it's impossible not to fall in love with him when you watch him play football. And I've been lucky enough to interview him, and he's a jolly nice guy who loves his wife a lot, and he's just. He is very patriotic, actually. And he's there's just something about him that you just think, oh, my goodness, I don't think I've seen a player like him ever. He's understated, he's modest, and yet sort of ruthless in what he does as well. There's something mm-hmm. magical about his reading of the game. Yeah. And he's diminutive, and you sort of see him in the lineup, and you think, really? Is he such an amazing player? But he is, he is. He just reads the game so beautifully. And I, I will feel sad if, if he says at the end of it, that's it now. He probably will, though, won't he? Say I goodbye. Mean, to international football. He's been incredible. But he's one of those players as well who, for those who don't watch, you know, La Liga every week, I mean, you maybe saw him lift those five Champions Leagues. To see him at the World Cup, what he's done in Croatia as an underdog nation. Exactly. That's so yeah. important. Um but the quality of controlling games, and you, you go back to the semi-final against England, and you just think without Luka Modric, England win. <laughs> Easy, actually. But he's able to turn the tide, to control the tempo, to direct not only his team, but the opposition to run them in the ground by moving the ball. I mean, it's a majestic talent, really. It's what football's about. He'd done that about. in the, yeah. the Champions League, didn't he, with yeah. Real Madrid last year on a couple of occasions. Well, that was, that was different, though, mm. because that was showing his talent in those key moments. Mm. But there have been periods during his career where the he would go out. Benzema. Yeah, no. it was the ball for Rodrigo, wasn't it? Outside yeah. the boot on the volley. But in terms of running the entire game, we didn't see that as much from Modric last season in the Champions League. Real Madrid got run ragged in virtually all their games. Mm. You know, we were sitting there saying, how on earth have they got through to the Champions League final, let alone won it? Whereas I think in seasons gone by, particularly with Croatia in those big tournaments, he's been able to put his foot on the ball and say, you're going to play at my pace and I'm in control of this game. A bit like Raquel May at his best. You know, those midfielders are, you know, you get to see one or two every 10 years, basically. So I've, he's one I will miss, for sure. Great player. Yeah, I won't, I won't when he plays Scotland next, though. <laughs> <laughs> My God, he certainly controlled the game against Scotland in Euros. Um, yeah. Yeah, but he's he's definitely one of the, one of the greats. Not long to go now, just time for us to discuss some of our, I think, favourite World Cup goals before I ask Tony about his favourite World Cup moment as a as a player. The World Cup, special goals, is what it's all about. Strangely, looking back at some of the videos in the build-up, what makes special goals sometimes are also the celebrations and the fan scenes. <laughs> I, I actually find that actually when you think about your favourite goals, it wasn't just the goal... You know, it's the expression on the player's face as they celebrate. It's that moment of elation, childhood dreams coming true. And then it cuts to the fans and the different cultures of fans that go along with the different cultures of the nations, of course. And you see these wild costumes or wild celebrations or you hear the Vuvuzelas or whatever it might be that go along with making those World Cup goals so special. But yeah, if you want to dive into your favourite goals, if there are any that come to mind, then... Do let me know. Who should I start with? Well, if with? I had to pick my favourite goal, yeah. and it's like impossible really, isn't it? Mm, so stuff. it's a combination of how you, you felt at the time, what mood you were in and where you were and everything. Anyway, as you might have noticed, I'm a woman of obsessions, so I tend to have various obsessions through mm. my life. Yeah. And one of them was Georgie Hadji. I don't know if you're all too young for that. No, 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 no,
I just was obsessed with Georgie Hadji and I was watching, and this is also my favourite World Cup, was 90, USA 94, because I watched the first half of it on holiday in Mallorca and watched it all in bars with, because it's a holiday destination, there was somebody from every team playing in the bar and it was like <laughs> being at a mini World Cup and it was just, the vibe was just quite, quite superb and he scored an amazing goal against Colombia in the group stage. So it wasn't even like a particularly significant goal because Colombia weren't very good and Romania topped their group. So it didn't really matter in that sense. But there was something special about Romania at that, you know, they're not often special, are they? There was something special about them. And his goal was, he was he was on the left and you'd think, well, he's obviously not going to shoot. Oh my goodness, so he is. And he sort of chips the keeper and like with an inch of perfection. It's just, I mean... It had to be inch, inch, inch. It was just perfect. And then you're absolutely right, Hugh, because his celebration just made you want to laugh out loud because he celebrated with his arms in the air like he had a hula hoop around his waist. I've never seen that celebration before. So he's jiggling his hips and mm. wobbling his belly because he, he did have a belly, I think. And so uh, it's just, and I just, it's just the joyousness of it when a player you've become fixated on and you feel like vindicated and justified. Mm. Oh yeah, I've been banging on about Georgie Hadji. Look, see, I was right. Look, not everyone could score a goal like that. But there are that's the point. There are billions of goals probably even better than that or technically better than that. But that's the one that made me happiest at that very moment. Well, I could mention because I'm a kid and when I first saw the Brazil versus Italy, Carlos Alberto's goal, which was the fourth one, the most famous... But I'm going to go for one that happened in 82, and I went to the 82 World Cup, and it was Marco Tardelli's goal in the final. Now, you talked about celebrations, Hugh. That's one of the greatest celebrations ever, where he's running away, shaking his head and his hands. Tears and the eyes. goal is a great strike, because he does something. You, you never really see the type of goal he got. It's his touch. It gets played across his body. He takes a touch, and as it's bouncing, he falls to the ground and hits it on the half volley into the bottom corner. And that was, to me, one of the greatest goals I saw. And um, I've always but had how a bit... did it make you feel? Oh, it was emotional because I was at my nan and granddad's in the Elephant and Castle and they were both Italian and going crazy. And that made me feel, should I have played for Italy? Well, no. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going to get in with Baggio. <laughs> no, I'm, jo I'm joking, but that... That was a big moment. And there was, you know, that was the World Cup of Paolo Rossi that came in and did brilliant uh, as well, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I would just go Marco Tardelli's. I'm going to go for two from 98. And the first one will surprise you, and it's Michael Owens. For the I same reason that, that you were saying, Alison, I just remember my heart rate picking up as he was carrying that ball. And, like, you know, your eyes widening and you're going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> and then if producing that finish and it's like that was like a wow moment even as a Scotsman <laughs> and uh, and the other one was Dennis Bergkamp's against yeah, Argentina yeah. Where, he just, oh, yeah. where he plucked out the sky and cut back inside and put in and he even kind of amazed himself he's like falling on the floor with his hands in his face mm. again but that was more like impactful it's like wow yeah. oh my god how has he done that yeah. whereas Michael Owens was like a cumulative effect you know <laughs> kind of building and building and building but it's for the same reason it's like you just remember kind of like your sort of internal experience yes. as yeah. as that goal uh, unfurled, and I, they're there to leap out to me. 
I was going to say, I bumped into Steve Hodge and asked him his favourite goal, and he said Maradona's hand. Got him £7 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think another goal in that game was the best World Cup goal ever, and I still think that's Maradona's oh, yes, of course. goal yes, against, against England. I wouldn't yeah. call it my favourite, though. I had, <laughs> I too had Burkamp against Argentina on the list, similar age to Gregor, and at the school fate in the school hall with all the, the parents around, well, I say the parents, mainly the dads around with a beer in hand. They'd wheeled out one of the TVs that we use, you know, to watch videos in class and they'd put the uh, Argentina game on. You could see all the kids running around outside who weren't interested in football. I mainly remember that goal for being, feeling totally in love with, like obsessed by and in love with football, basically. Like I just remember that period of my life. Obviously I was 10, 11 years old. So that was a big one. There's a few though, I think that uh, I would still consider to be my favourite goals at least uh, at the World Cup. Robbie Keane, I've said this before, haven't I? Um, the equaliser against Germany yep. in 2002, which, watch it again. It was a 1-1 that game, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, one all draw. Yeah, yeah. It was a last gasp equaliser. Ireland had been pushing for a goal. It was exactly what they deserved. The minimum they should have got out of the game. But I remember thinking, Oliver Kahn almost saved it. He almost made the save of a lifetime. It actually flicks off uh, his little finger and it great. It just touches the inside of the post. And then he got a little bit more on it. Such was the power. It would have just ricocheted off the post and out. But it was a great moment. I grew up in an area in northwest London and all my friends are of Irish heritage and I watched a lot of Irish rugby and, and football when I was younger. And that was a huge moment. It stands out at Robbie Keane's goal at the World Cup as well. So um, for me, that's my, one of my favourites. Rhea yeah. Hogan's yeah. as well in, yeah. in USA. Yeah, you remember that one? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yes, thank you. I don't know why that's just that's another one from uh, that era. That's the, well, that's yeah, the oh, of, it's no, all about it's all about your age when you were kind of when, That is it. That when is the it. World Cup was and it also I, I mean it is about the freedom that you have during that period of time in your life as well. You yeah. know, not at work, not at school, actually just sitting back as a football fan, reveling in the tournament itself, soaking it all in, which we don't always get to do, you know, at various stages of well, our I, life. Although well, I had uh, you know, the bunk off uh, school, unfortunately, to watch Scotland play in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote about this after Scotland last qualified. Our school headmaster was like, on the day of the game, right, listen, guys uh, and girls, we know there's a big game on today, but if any of you leave, then you're in big trouble and the, the gates open and we just swarmed out of <laughs> <the> school. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it, because... 98 was an extraordinary world. Uh, sorry, 78 was an extraordinary World Cup. Argentina and the paper and Mario yeah. Campes scoring yeah. and the atmosphere. That was a really special World Cup. I, again, growing up as a teenager and watching that and, and Maradona being the ball boy, literally bringing and delivering. You're, you're seeing him at first hand, seeing him do the juggling acts on the pitch and then he becomes one of the greatest players that ever played the game. You know, things like that that stand out for you in World Cup moments. It's the discovery, isn't it? Mm. It's like... Although that's diminished a bit because the game's so much you know, more globalised, you still just hope that there's going to be discoveries. There always is, but you there going is. to be a discovery of James some Rodriguez, special, special talent that you aren't going to pick yeah. out. player that was already played yeah. in Europe, but just, yeah. you know. Elevated to the very top immediately. And yeah. mark my words, this Japan team, you're going to discover them. I, I still can remain convinced within the next five World Cups. Big in Japan. J- Japan will win. All right, Japan will win. Um, Tony, I said that we would end oh. on a positive World Cup moment of yours <laughs> as a as a player at your two tournaments. Doesn't have to be one of the games. Just something you experienced that you 
uh, cherish from from your experience? Well, one of the funniest things, and it's not really PC this one because it's not the deemed thing to, or the deemed to be a good thing to Blimey, do. Blimey, you can't tell us about what you've no, got. No, no, no. It's no. another jacuzzi story. No, no, it's not. It's still a story. In touch. A story we're, still, was, we're still in touch after all. It was a story that was, we were playing Italy in Rome um, in the quarterfinals of the World Cup and the night before, everyone was a bit edgy and Jack said, oh, look, come down to the reception at 6.30. Uh, Jack Charlton said, come down, our coach. We're going to have a uh, pint of Guinness. So I was all like, really? So we went down and said, we've had a couple of kegs to uh, Guinnesses. So he said, I want you to just listen to a conversation first. Um, I'm going to tell you what about this experience you're going to have tomorrow. He said, look, you're going to play Italy in the Olympic Stadium. The ref's going to give you nothing. You're going to get beat and you're going to go home. <laughs> so let's have a pint of Guinness. Sleep well tonight and we'll prepare for the game. So the night ended up being a few pints of Guinness and it went on and on and on. And it went to quite late. A number of us had quite a few Guinnesses. We were playing eight o'clock next night. So we could get up in the next morning, try, we'll have a walk or whatever we're going to do, light training session. Years later down the line, I asked Jack why he did that that night. And he said, well, you all take sleeping tablets, don't you? You all night before, you can't sleep. You're twisting and turning in bed. You're all nervous, worrying about the game. He said, I didn't want you to worry about the game. I wanted you to have a good night's sleep after a few pints, get up in the morning, do training, get prepared and play the game and you'll have the game of your life. It was the best we played in Italy. We played our best game. We lost 1-0 and a bit of a mistake by Paki Bonner, uh, but we deserve something out of the game. And that always stuck with me, that that moment of you just go, we're going to do that. Now, you imagine that England tomorrow got to the quarterfinals and that story got out about a team we had police around us and everything. Guys, we were playing all party games. And they couldn't believe <laughs> it. this team are having a playing against Italy in their own backyard tomorrow night. They were laughing. They could not believe the games we were playing. It was just fun and games all night with a few points. And that will always stand with me of like, that was in a weird way what we were all about but were still prepared to, when we got on that pitch, we knew that every blade of grass we'd cover. That moment would stand out for me. Mate, fantastic. Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Tony Cascarino, World Cup memories. Gregor Robertson, uh, Alison Rudd, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you all for listening. The World Cup is here. Make sure you enjoy it. We're going to have a podcast for you each and every night throughout the group stage, plenty throughout uh, the knockouts as well. I will be in Qatar, so will Tony. And we will, of course, be sharing with you all of our full experiences. So make sure you're subscribed uh, for all of that great content. And also, of course, make sure you're checking out some of the great articles and writing in in the Times right now. So download the app or you can check out the game at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you very, very soon. 